Okay, and welcome to the first of the bonus episodes of the Film File podcast. These ones are what I'm going to call the hashtag MTOS podcast episodes. Just to give a bit of background, the hashtag MTOS is a hashtag that we use on Twitter every Sunday for little movie chats, which are 10 questions based around a theme. The idea behind it came way back in August 2011 when Raghav, at Raghav Modi, and Rachel at Ask Him Rach. They launched MTOS because they'd looked around Twitter and seen that there was various Twitter chats going on, like travel ones, food ones, etc., etc., and were surprised to find that there was no actual like film community questions thing going on. So they started on, well, it was August 2011, 10 questions on the topic. I think they did New York in films, which I've also revisited over the past year. And it ran for a good few years with a good group of people just chatting being friendly, no matter what opinions you've got, if it differs with everyone, it was always about like, you know, just being social, just uh, accepting other people's opinions, having a good laugh and enjoying the passion for film. It ran for about five years before it just sadly fizzled out. And then in June of last year, I brought it back on a whim, simply because I think it must have been around April or May, I put it out as like, what happened to MTOS? And someone just says, well, why don't you start it again? It's like, all right, gave it a shot. And stuck with it ever since. So every, every Sunday night on Twitter at 8pm UK time, if you're in a different part of the world, just adjust that for whatever's necessary. Google's your friend on that one. A topic goes out uh, with 10 questions set over 90 minutes and we discuss it. And over the past year, there's been a variety of subjects from talking about particular directors, particular actors, themes of films, genres, music... And also um, using lyrics from songs as inspiration, such as uh, about two months ago, I did a Rick Astley one where the questions were never going to give you up. Which film could you never imagine losing from your DVD collection, etc, etc. That's how this all came about. With the questions for MTOS, regularly at work with a few people, I've sat around and thrown out these questions and had a good discussion. That's where this idea for this podcast came from. So uh, for those who aren't aware yet i'm andy one of the hosts of the regular film file with me today is uh, i'm scott I, I was on last episode of you and we where i out to do as my partner <laughs> <laughs> james uh, i've been friends with andy for quite some time now i'm jason i've just wandered in from the street <laughs> yep uh, we picked up a hobo on the way here and um, he's just made himself comfortable in my house supping on his uh, dirty beer <laughs> So today's topic is to tie in to episode two of The Film File when we covered Tarantino's latest output, which is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. A few months ago, I did a Tarantino-themed MTOS, and so we're going to work through those questions today and have a roundtable discussion based on them. So let's kick it all off with question one. Okay, top three Tarantino films. Go. Uh, Kill Bill. Which one? Volume one. Volume two, no. <laughs> Why? Well, yeah, that was a bit. <laughs> no, I, I just find it sort of like a lackluster ending to the whole thing, where you've got the huge build-up in number one, and then it was just let down sadly with how slow it was paced. What if you could put it together like the whole bloody affair? Again, you'd probably have the same issue. Okay. Um, I don't know which way to move. <laughs> what else has he done? <laughs> what, what, what are you thinking? The slow key director. What's his filmography? Oh, I can say Pulp Fiction is probably up there, and Inglorious Bastards. Okay. Okay. What? Why? With Inglorious Bastards, it's just for the slapstick comedy over the top violence. True, but is that not present in a lot of his 
Sin Django. Yeah, but Django came after Inglorious. Yeah, yeah. He's done All right. Got a chronology. Inglorious Bastards, I mean, although the Tarantino verse had kind of been established, that was the first time that he took like historical events, yeah. but twisted and skewed it and ma- ma- made clear that the universe that he sets his films in is not our universe. Yeah, it's when he became like his own version of himself, isn't it? Like, I wanted to say a caricature, but that sounds disrespectful in some way, doesn't it? Yeah. Jason, do you agree with those three? Yeah, I mean, I've really enjoyed Pulp Fiction uh, growing up uh, through college. It was one of those, you know, big films you watch at the time. I did really enjoy Inglorious Bastards when obviously, or when I watched it, I only watched it for once, but I love alternate history takes when they're done in a fun way as opposed to being like overly bleak. And so it was. It was enjoyable enough, and there was a lot of tension in some of the scenes, like the opening uh, was That opening scene is, like, it's possibly the most tense moment on film in years. Yeah, Christoph Waltz was uh, terrifying. It was, was (laughs) yeah, it was uh, really decent, that one. I really enjoyed Django probably a lot more than most people, but I was absolutely uh, hammered when I watched it. <laughs> so, I, top tip, guys, get hammered before you watch Django. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd been on a, a double date, essentially, and I'd never been on one before, and the pressure was killing me, and I accidentally had one too many cocktails and went to Django, and it was an amazing film. But <laughs> It's a Johnny Depp one as a lizard, isn't it? <laughs> I really loved uh, Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. So, that, yeah, I'd say probably that might be my top one, actually, because it was yeah, very well done. And I loved the fact that you didn't see the incidents. Yeah. You were learning as the characters learned. And it was a nice exploration. I agree. Like, I, I, I think you were, I almost by default, rather than give it more thought than I should, put Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction 1 and 2. Because I, I like the way it plays with narrative and just has fun. You don't see the inciting incident. You don't see how the in Pulp Fiction how the the strands overlap till towards the end yeah, when yeah. you piece, can piece it, and I think they're the two films that people still most associating with. Yeah, but it's because it was like for a lot of people in watching, you know, I I hate to use the term, but like basic Hollywood cinema, mm. it was sort of like a first proper exploration with non-linear storytelling, and I think it stuck with people because it was different and it was fresh and it was sort of postmodern in itself. Yeah. So um, people again weren't used to something that was sort of fun and self-referential and everything. So I think they they definitely stuck around because it was like that first time that you know. Yeah. Nostalgia yeah. vision and that, but they are they do stand up as quite. It's that third one I struggle because I feel like whatever I pick, I change my mind. <laughs> so like I I like Jackie Brown. I think it's quite underrated. But I also don't. Think, I think it's probably the least Tarantino of all the Tarantino films. Yeah. In a weird way. And then I love Kill Bill, but then what? which part do you pick? Because I like them both for different reasons, but the first one's more exhilarating than the second, but and the second is only informed by the first sort of thing. And then Inglourious Bastards is both my favourite and least favourite Tarantino film at the same time. Because <laughs> <laughs> okay. you could put any scene on and I'd love it. And then I watch the film and I think, this is so indulgent, it's making me cry. <laughs> That's a, I mean, yeah. pulp, pulp Fiction seems to be a popular one. I mean, I've got that in my top three. And when I ran this question on MTOS, pretty much everyone had Pulp Fiction within there. I think that he really gelled his whole style. His mm. flashbacks and forwards is, like you say, the playing with the narrative. Uh, you know, it's a flows. And while some people say there's continuity errors between, like, one 
perception of a scene and another one. Mm-hmm. It is supposed to be other people's perceptions of events that took place. Yeah. So Samuel Jackson's like Ezekiel quote is slightly different on both the two times. Also, you've got the everybody be cool. This is a robbery. Any of you can pigs move. That is given different wording on the scene towards the end. But it's all about the, the character's yeah, it perceptions. Yeah, it helps establish who's the protagonist of that particular part of the film. But at the yeah. same time, people miss out the amazing continuity that's in there, such as you see John Travolta going to the toilet in the opening scene. He's mm. in the background of one of the scenes while they're talking about like pulling the heist, and he just wanders past. And it's something that I didn't realise until me recent re- re-watching them. So I went through all the Tarantino films mm. um, before Hollywood came out. I've got a greater... Because I was with you with Kill Bill 2. was like very, like, yeah. yeah, underwhelming. But watching them back to back, it worked a lot better. It flowed better as one story. And now it just annoys me that he split it into two. Yeah, He should have kept it as one story. Because Kill Bill 1 just came out the gates, smashed it, did some great moments and all that. But Kill Bill 2, like you say, was a slower. It was drawn out. But it's because it's the bookend for yeah. the main story. Would have been interesting to have seen what the original edit would have been rather than splitting it into two and then trying to make a full film from both of them. But for me, myself, Pulp Fiction, mm. Reservoir Dogs, I'm with you on that. It's, I mean, it, it was out, out the gate with like his first directorial piece. And what a piece. What a great character piece. It's all about the dialogue. It's all about the interaction. And it's all about the like picking up the pieces of the thread to work out who like what's going on as the characters are learning it. Yeah. Some marvellous performances throughout. Up until recently, Hateful Eight was within the top three. I think it's his most beautiful film. It looks amazing on screen. It's got a great soundtrack. And again, it's all about the dialogue in that. There's not a lot that you actually see Mm. in there, but it's all about the interaction between the characters. But having seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's jostling into that top three. Oh, interesting. It's it's fighting its way to knock Hateful Eight just into number four, I think. Because uh, I feel that that's the one that feels more like his earlier films. Okay. It's got that narrative of flashing backwards and forwards, flashing backwards and forwards. And I, I just found myself caught into the characters, uh, the main characters. I mean, everyone like goes on about like how, oh, Margot Robbie didn't get much to do in there. It's like you're missing the point of what her character was. She mm. was like this big like actress that he aspires to be a part of that world. But it shows her just living a normal life and trying to be a normal person. I mean, I don't want to do any spoilers, but I've got theories on the ending of that film that are completely like different to what most people have picked up on. But let, we're not going to talk about that here because <laughs> uh, I'm still aware that some people haven't seen the film and I don't want to spoil it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a definite cert that Pulp Fiction is like the common ground between all of us there. Yeah. Um, so that's top three. So what about the bottom three? What makes them rank lower? Are they bad films or just not as good as the others? I don't think he has done a bad film, has he? I think we can say that. There's less good. There but is less no good. Bad. I, I have an um, unfair perception of The Hateful Eight because when I watched it, um, there was like some stuff going on in the background, so I had to pop out and send a message you know, once or twice. Uh, and I think the film's just like very downbeat and um, much like in Pulp Fiction, but it felt somehow like. Pulp Fiction was a product of its time, so it's more acceptable. But the the more recent, like, making fun of male rape type thing was a bit... Yeah, I don't think I was into that at the time. Uh, <laughs> what? The making fun of it or the male rape? The male rape. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's uh, so so was, uh, I, I will say that, like, though I don't think it was a bad film, and I agree it was beautiful, it was a good soundtrack and stuff, I didn't enjoy it when I watched it. So by default, unfairly, I have to put it 
mm. sort of at the bottom because I remember not enjoying it and I've not had a chance to. Well, I have had a chance. I just haven't rewatched haven't it. Revisited it's it. your hateful eighth. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and there ends the podcast. <laughs> Good work, boys. I mean, picking out the bottom three is probably going to be tricky because, like you say, that like he's not made a particularly bad film. And so, if we all just have one that we'd say, I mean, you you'd probably say Hateful Eight then. Yeah, yeah, man. Hateful Eight's a tricky one because it, it's like uh, this will sound like contradictory, but I agree, it's like incredibly cinematic and beautiful but it also feels like it could equally just be a stage play set up and you'd watch it unfold and not much would change what i'm curious is because in america on netflix they've got the serialized version of it that was um restructured and re-edited to be a mini series um, which we've not had over here and apparently i've heard reports from people who've seen it who says it actually works a lot better in a serialised approach. And apparently he's doing something similar with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because there's loads of cut scenes that he wants to put back in, but then release it episodically. Oh, wow, mm. okay. But it's tough because I remember great dialogue as usual. I remember great characters, but I'd also remember little to no plot points. <laughs> <laughs> and I think for that reason alone, it has to be near the bottom. Because yeah. even Death Proof, which I think is the only other contender for this bottom one. Oh, God, I forgot Death Proof existed. Um... Oh, I, 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 I'm, I like I'm, it I'm, on my rewatches of Death Proof because I remember when Death Proof came out there was that and Planet Terror and Planet Terror was the better of the two like grand yeah, house yeah, films I film, and I remember just thinking Death Proof was just Tarantino like you know loving himself too much and it was full of too many Tarantinoisms to feel like a grindhouse film Yeah. but on my rewatch of it I actually went you know what I kind of get what he's doing here yeah. and I kind of enjoyed it a lot more but I wasn't at a cinema doing it. I was at home, and so it was a different kind of environment. It's definitely one to revisit if you've not revisited it, because mm. you might get a completely different perception. It's a very tricky one to judge, though, isn't it? Because it's like a small part of what's meant to be a double bill. Yeah. So you almost feel like you can't judge it in the same criteria as the others. It's interesting, because yeah. the first time I watched it as Grindhouse as the whole, which mm. was actually the first time I watched it, like I was so sort of fatigued from the overtop ridiculousness of the wonderful little trailers and Planet Terror mm. that I was just tired through Death Proof and I still sort of enjoyed it, but I was just sort of like, I've never this got is to very have different. The full experience. So I, I, I weren't even sure where it came if it were first or second. <laughs> so, so that was the hangover from Planet Terror. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of very strange because you're like, you're pumped, you're full of energy because everything is ridiculous and dialed to 11 in Planet Terror. Yeah. And then Tarantino slows it right back down, which which was uh, weird for me, but what I preferred watching it on its own when I didn't have like the adrenaline rush first and I, I got a better appreciation. So it's... You would have killed it by Planet Terror if you watched it the other way around, though. I don't know. I've not tried watching... <laughs> before, before we get on to what James's uh, least favourite one film is, I'm going to upset him by saying Jackie Brown is my least favourite. Does that upset you? It doesn't really upset me. I, I like Jackie Brown. I'm not saying... That, I mean, but... You look visibly upset. <laughs> you, you, met, you, mentioned, you mentioned when you were talking about it before that it's it doesn't it's the least feel of Tarantino. And yeah, I mean, that's one of the aspects that I just, you watch it and it's just like, this could have been any director. There's no nothing that makes it Tarantino film. And when I rewatched it recently, I wanted to go back and like find that I loved it. But again, I just find myself just going, eh, it's okay. It's not a bad film. Yeah. It's just, it's okay. It's passable. Yeah. Um, it's got a great soundtrack. I mean, that oh, soundtrack brilliant. is yeah. amazing. Street life. But um, it, it it just didn't gel with me for some reason. And I, I just think, no, if I, if I was told that I had to throw one of me like deep Blu-rays away, it would be that one. 
and I'd keep all the others. Yeah. Um, I'm torn between Hateful Light and Reservoir Dogs for my... Whoa! Whoa! Right, Whoa. Well, we're just going to pause this podcast a minute while we just beat some sense into James. It's okay <laughs> to not like things. No, no, no. no. <laughs> they, they, they both have the, the same irritation I have where you have the film stagnate in one place for too long. It would work better as a series or something, where you've got the short, so like half an hour, 45-minute episodes in that one place rather than having to sit an hour and a half and two hours just watching the same scenario and what have you just play out over and over. But don't you find it fun jumping back and forth to see the build-up and the ramifications of an incident you didn't really see? I'm not saying they're bad films. I'm just saying that they're my least favourite of the bunch. We don't have to think so. they're bad films. I'm just suggesting. Tarantino's <laughs> <laughs> not done one good film. <laughs> I Ta- knew it. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, Tarantino's not made a bad film. I mean, it's not like he's Michael Bay, who ha- has What's made... What's he made that's bad? <laughs> Most of his career. Someone who actually likes the Transformers films, I'm offended. <laughs> So th- there's also the films that Tarantino co- contributed to, either script or he was an actor or he produced, uh, but didn't actually direct. Which ones of these would you say are worth seeing? And there's one answer that I'm just going to say flat out the gate. True romance. Yeah. Yeah. It's my it's my favourite of his pen. I mean, it, it's just a perfect combination because um, you read you read the written script of it and you realise that quite a lot of it translated straight onto the screen. And the direction by Tony Scott is spot on and the cast are amazing. It's such a marvellous film that when I rewatched it, and I hadn't watched it for like eight or nine years, mm. and I sat and rewatched it as part of my run up, within the first 10 minutes, I was in love with the characters again. Yeah. I, um, I haven't seen uh, True Romance because every time I try, something has gone horrendously wrong. <laughs> so, so it's, it's one I really want to watch but every time in the back of my mind I'm just like yeah but you can't afford to replace you know whatever's going to break this time or, <laughs> or you can't afford another injury you know <laughs> so, so I, I really really want to but I, and any other films that he's been involved in that you would throw out there as like quality you got the you got the top one for me but uh, the one that's not too far behind is Dust till dawn. I've always kind of, <laughs> I've always dug. I, I really like the midpoint twist, <laughs> and they just nerfed to do that when they did it. I yeah. think I, I think that goes overlooked a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, um, especially now because people know what it is now. But at mm. the time, people sat there watching it like, "Hang, hang on, what?" It was yeah, a wonderful like, moment. Like yeah, the film, you you are like almost promised in the first half. You're more than okay with, and then you go, "Oh yeah." every time and i love it and it's one of my favorite rodriguez films yeah yeah i mean the combination of tarantino and rodriguez together i mean rodriguez's style of direction Mm. is very like frenetic and it's just crazy and out there and like it almost feels like the first half of the film is tarantino just saying to like rodriguez calm it down pace it like one of my films and then when you take over for the last half of the film, it goes bonkers nuts. And it does, it goes, I mean, the only drawback that I had for that is like being hugely invested in like reading everything about films before I went to see them at the time, oh, like yeah. all the magazines. I knew what the flip would be. Mm. So I was just waiting for the flip. If I had gone in completely blind, not yeah. expecting oh, yeah. it, it would have absolutely knocked me for a six. It yeah. also yeah. leads me to think that maybe Chalmers Reverse um, Grindhouse could work. Yeah. <laughs> because that starts off sort of like a Tarantino reasonably slow and then hits 11 so maybe yeah. <laughs> house grind <Thank> you. 
<laughs> any love for any of the other films that he's... Um, Natural Born Killers has got to be shared, hasn't it? True. I adore that film. I would say Desperados. It was he involved? It was. Well, in it for a bit and stuff. So he's in the bar scene towards the beginning. He was, yeah. Oh, yes. Good yeah. shout. Yeah. <laughs> so that and not Little Nicky. I'd actually go so far, because <laughs> Tarantino's own acting credentials leave little to be desired. <laughs> um, he pops up in his own films in the most cringeworthy roles ever. But in Dust Till Dawn, that small scene with him going to the bar and being a bit of a dick, it works well and it shows that it, when another director's utilising him, they can get a better pers- persona out of him than what he does himself. Mm. I completely forgotten that. It's quite a good bit as well. <laughs> yeah. completely edited it out. Any love for Four Rooms? I actually enjoy it. Ooh. I've only ever seen it for once. And it wasn't at all what I was expecting. And, uh, yeah, like Tarantino was exactly how I expected him to behave, which in itself was joyous for me because I was just like, oh, of course, you know, you just have that moment. But when I watched it, I I had a lot of fun and I could see it's not great, but sometimes having fun is what's important. And that's uh, that's what I had. I mean, four rooms for me, it's uh, Tim Roth just about holds it together, which moves nicely onto question four, which is frequent collaborators. He's worked with the same people a few times over his career. Which star is your favourite frequent collaborator? And, you know, whilst Tim Roth isn't my favourite, I think that any time he's been involved in a Tarantino production or film, he's just a gem. Oh, we're thinking about this. Like, take Tarantino out of his career. I can't think of a good Tim Roth film. Am I, am I forgetting something really obvious? It probably are. <laughs> but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. That's what I mean. Like, it <laughs> yeah. just feels like, oh, oh, damn. I feel like you've, feel like you've <laughs> just played a Jedi mind trick on us because I'm, like, I'm sure there's something. If I'm sure he's done the magic of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> if only we weren't all on flight mode at the moment so that our phones don't disrupt the podcast, we'd be able to research this. Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> Any frequent collaborator, collaborators? It, it's probably one of these at least ones that he's done, but Christoph Waltz. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. More recent. That, that guy can act. He, yeah, he, he can act. He can chew scenery. He doesn't just chew scenery. He chews it, then drinks down with any of the surrounding location, and then throws it back up so he can eat it all again. <laughs> <laughs> he's one of those sort of actors where I like to imagine he just wandered on set. And they went, okay, you're in this. Yeah, and they sure. gave him no lines. <laughs> <laughs> They're always my favourite type of actors. The scene was actually very different, but we just went with it because it was so intense. <laughs> As he strangles a woman. <laughs> I think you... <laughs> I, um... Dark. I think you... Yeah. <laughs> you have to check out Samuel, don't you? Yeah. I mean, his, his career's like littered with great Tarantino performances. But you get to the point where Samuel's roles are just the same role in each of the film, essentially. I'd, I'd say no. No, no I, think, I think he's had a, a versatile range. I mean, yeah, he's had those, like, you know, in Pulp Fiction, there's his Jules character, and mm. then you've kind of got, like, a similar kind of portrayal in Jackie Brown. Yeah. But, you know, you, you look at his um, his housemaster in Django. Yeah, yeah. And it's such a different take because it's a it's a character that's been warped by the environments that he's been brought into. Yeah. And he's become a nasty piece of work simply because of the environments, whereas the others were nasty pieces of work, but ones that you kind of loved. Mm. I, I mean, he, Sam Jackson even pops up briefly in a true romance. He does. Well, well it's got an impressive cameo. For, for, about, for about all of three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it has, it has what, like Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt. 
uh, Christopher Walken. Yeah. Oh, it's oh, I love that. James Gandolfini. I think I remember is in it. Oh yeah. Is he? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's one of those you when you first watch it, he probably wasn't a name, and then when you go back, you go, why did I never know he was in it? <laughs> but, but dude walking. Dude walking. Dude walking. Walking. Dude walking. Right. <laughs> Any love for Uma? Nah. I like him. What? what? That was very dismissive. I'm not saying she's a bad actress or anything. It's just the fact that she's not sort of like grass it all caught my attention sort of like thing when she's doing her roles or anything like that, just to go, you know, carry on with even as a bride. I find that really interesting, yeah, because one of your top picks yeah. was Kill Bill, and then you're just like, I don't think much of the main character. my experience. In, in Kill Bill Volume 1, it's more quite a lot of the side characters of what I actually really enjoy about the film. Okay. okay. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. So, Tarantino, you can't mention any of his films without mentioning music. Hmm? Are there any of his film soundtracks that you find yourself wanting to listen to over and over again? I do listen to Kill Bill Volume 1 quite a lot. Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood is one of my favourite tracks. Yeah, it's that. a cracking tune. Mm-hmm. That one. That's the one that brought a lot of the sort of... It brought, oh, I wish I could remember my fan, but there's two or three songs it brought to like almost the pop pop mainstream where I feel like I've seen everywhere. Yeah. I forget what it's called, but the the main one that's like... Yeah, that's become like a standard trailer theme yeah. almost. Yes, yeah. like it, it brought out the somebody did a remake of She Shot Me Down and stuff as well. After yeah, the, yeah, uh, audio I, bullies, I believe. I don't remember. I used to use Battle Without Honor as the background on when I was doing one of my radio shows way back. Mm. Um, whenever we were talking about like you know what the UK top 10 was. For films at that point in time, it's just like, dun, 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 yeah. dun, dun, dun. and at number ten this week is it? <laughs> Did, didn't he? Didn't he steal it from like quite an obscure Japanese sequel? Uh, More of, likely at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, right. he's stolen pretty much everything from yeah. something else. And <laughs> no, no. The whole hey. of the Django soundtrack is just stolen from other things. Yeah. We call it heavily pay homage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> References, guys. <laughs> I mean, um, score wise, Hateful Eight has mm. a beautiful score, and that's because it's Ennio Morricone. Mor- and this is where Morricone. I do. Ennio Morricone. Yeah. This is where I do a Lee, <laughs> and I mispronounce a, a name of someone, Morricone. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a typical Western score, and I think it sits alongside things like you know the Once Upon a Time in the West mm. and the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly as mm-hmm. like really like iconic kind of like Western kind of key themes, and that's deliberate because that's what he was trying to go for with that film. Mm. I heard that apparently he wanted him to do some for Inglorious Bastards as well, and only like Morricone was tied up with other projects, so he only submitted like three sections of the score. Uh, five are on the soundtrack, but only three of them made it to the film. But it would that's... have been interesting to like hear a Morricone score all the way through Inglorious. Yeah, because I remember the big thing when Hateful Eight come out, were coming out is oh he's finally doing a western. I'm like, have you watched any of his films? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, even Bill Volume Two was effectively a western. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it, they're all they all fall for it. When he finally did it, I'm like, you've done this. Oh, oh, you haven't, but you have. <laughs> <laughs> Favourite soundtracks? I'm not sure, to be honest. It's not a bad one, it's yeah, just yeah, some of his films, isn't it? Uh, back when I used to have a Kindle, I'm pretty sure I had most of what he had at the time as his uh, tracks in there. I think for me, Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill Volume 1 are the soundtracks that I'll, I'll happily go back and listen to from start to finish over and over again. There's some great tunes in there. But there's one track on Death Proof 
that oh, is my instant favourite. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, what an inspired choice Shoot. to play over the end credits. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. I mean, you know, Death Proof also has uh, the great Dave D. Dozy Beaky McIntyre hold tight, oh, yeah. um, played at like a very key moment of the film, and that made me suddenly go, oh, oh, I need to dig out my Dave D. Dozy Beaky McIntyre album. Again. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a knack of managing to put something in one of his films that makes you go, I need to track out more of this material. Yeah. I need to find out who this was and what else they've done. And a lot of the times you find out that everything else they've done wasn't as good. He was just good at selecting the key pieces. Yeah. Which is a skill, isn't it, really? It is, yeah. So let's move away from music, which is one of his tropes, to other tropes. He's known for certain shticks and tropes that help identify a film as is. You can usually spot a Tarantino film off a mile off. So what's your favourite Tarantinisms and which are a bit irksome? Pro. It's obviously is, is like the question dialogue that ends in violence. That's, that's <laughs> every Tarantino scene, isn't it? <laughs> but like, con, someone's going to say it. I'm going to get there first. Feet. <laughs> I, I've forgotten all about the feet. If you If you did the running time of every Tarantino collaborator against the amount of foot shots... <laughs> I'd be very intrigued and then if you, it's in the top three. <laughs> and, and then you watch Jackie Brown and it takes the feet to 11. Oh, it, it, once upon a time in Hollywood takes that to 15. Uh, <laughs> oh, I've wow. seen more feet in that film than what I've ever seen in, in my life. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to admit, finding out that fact about Tarantino and his love of feet really changed when I watched From Dust Till Dawn for a few and I was like, Oh, actually, this scene now makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> because this is, a, this is an actor who is way too into his role right now. Yeah, you, rarely get, you rarely get the feeling that him and Rodrigo are sat there going through the script. I want a scene where I get to suck on Salma's feet. But you don't really Why? Is it important? <laughs> it's important to me. Character <laughs> development. My character is a bad man who likes feet, okay? Does, no, that's just you, Quentin. That's you. Is he going to contract you obliged for at least so many minutes of feet? <laughs> yeah, every, every. Um, I noticed he, he's got a love of the Wilhelm scream. Yeah. yeah, which is one of my personal lo- loves of film. Anyway, I I, I always find myself chuckling whenever mm. once, it, regardless what the context of the scene is, a Wilhelm scream just breaks me out of it, it's but got, in a good way. It's gone to the point now with just films in general where you can't tell whether it's a genuine use <laughs> or whether it's a reference because they're like, oh, I love that scream. Let's put it <laughs> well, in. it's become the ultimate movie Easter egg, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Almost yeah. <laughs> And my favourite Tarantinism myself is his low point of view shots of people opening car boots, chests, suitcases, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. whatever. He loves that kind of view and I think it's still a very good impactful view just to have like like main characters looking down at you the mysterious item that you don't know what it is at that point in time and we never did find out what it was in Pulp Fiction <laughs> what is your Pulp lead, Friction <laughs> what's your lead theory my lead theory I, I personally like the whole idea it's Marcellus Wallace's soul I do I, I also <laughs> like the idea it's just a bulb well it <laughs> <laughs> Is that what I think it is? Yes. It's beautiful. This is a sweet LED setup you've got here. When you pull something meaningful out of his case, it's going to look so good. A recent shtick that he started to use over his past few films, I mean, he first introduced it in Jackie Brown, but it became a bit more prevalent afterwards. Whereas he used to have music playing and then fading out, like at the end of the scene, he uses it, and as the song is building, it then suddenly cuts to the next scene. Yeah. 
And I think that jarring cut, it's quite a nice technique when used well. Because, it, it, like, it, you're caught up in the music, you're caught up in that moment, so boom, suddenly thrown into something else. And I think that that's a nice shtick that I like I like him using. Admittedly, he's, he says he's only got one more film that he's going to do, so we're only going to get that one more time, but, you know. He's, he's very much an actor's director, though, isn't he? I can imagine, like, if you, you, you sign on to a Tarantino film because you, you don't have two lines. <laughs> You've got about fifteen pages of script, and then you get shot in the head, and you're like, "I'm all right with that." <laughs> I do really enjoy the like sometimes blurring between being able to tell if a conversation is friendly or whether there's underlying intention. Yeah, that's it's brilliant. I, yeah, it's just, uh... and it always veers at a key point. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and sometimes you just sat there and you're like, "I think I'm finally comfortable." I think, "Oh no, no, it's for violence." <laughs> <laughs> Which again, Scott manages to seamlessly segue to the next question, which is uh, the skill with dialogue that have made his films immensely quotable. So what lines or full scenes are amongst your favourite? Which ones did the dialogue properly sizzle in and properly grab you? I'll feed his head to your balls. Legitimately, though, that whole scene, which is almost like a mini-movie in the middle of Inglorious Bastards, I think that's one of the best scenes Tarantino's ever done. Everyone goes yeah. to the Christopher Waltz at the beginning, and for great reason. Yeah. But that one, the, the sheer tension of that scene gets to like an uncomfortable level I don't think he's managed out of me in any other film. Yeah, especially because just... some of the um, actors at that, or characters at that point are so likeable as well. It's mm. just harrowing, isn't it? You just sort of like, oh, no. And then just to punctuate in a line like that, that and uh, it's a bingo. <laughs> 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 stay with me, uh, stay with me. Uh, more, more than probably genuinely iconic lines. <laughs> Can't think of many, but the only one that sticks in my mind is the uh, Tricks are for Kids from Kill Bill Volume 1. <laughs> Silly rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said that a lot, unironically, and I always wonder where I've got it from, because that advert only played in America, so I, yeah. it must be yeah. like a Simpsons thing. I've got it from Tarantino, so of course. Tar- I'm, sure, Tar- Tar- I'm sure Simpsons brought it up at one point, though. Yeah, probably. So, there was some cartoon. Simpsons probably did it first, because... Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Simpsons did it. The South Park episode's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> from some sort of cultural osmosis, I know that line, anyway. <laughs> mine will probably just be... Um, you know the the diner scene at the start of Pulp Fiction, yeah, where it just let's say the classic escalation and stuff, but it's just great to you know the soft touchiness and if any of you, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean Pulp Fiction for me, I'm with you on the opening scene, but for me, it's the final scene, the interplay between Sam Jackson and Tim Roth is just such a well played out conversation. Yeah. yeah, it's a brilliant like ending, like and, and both the scenes together bookends that whole story perfectly and like finishing with the like a like once it's all over it's like i think we better leave yeah you're right and they just, <laughs> they just saunter out oh no my absolute ooh, ooh, my ooh. absolute favorite line is pulp fiction oh shit i've just shot marvin the face <laughs> <laughs> that is my favorite tarantino moment of all time i've said royale with cheese more than i need to that still whole, on pulp fiction that whole film <laughs> like <laughs> Over to the farmhouse scene in Inglorious Bastards, the dialogue in that, and where is it initially felt contrived mm. that, like, all of a sudden they go from talking, like, in one language to, like, do you know English? Let's talk in English. When it becomes clear that it's because the people under the floorboards don't know English, it's like, oh, yeah. the contrivance was for a reason. And yeah. it wasn't just like, you know, you see it in so many films. I mean, look at The Hunt for the October, where Sean Connery basically says, Dr. Fredonia, and then, like, starts talking English. It's like... <laughs> 
well, I say English. It, it, he talks in a slightly Scottish accent and everything <laughs> that he does, regardless of what nationality. Uh, that's How dare uh, he sounded <laughs> like a perfect Spanish gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the dialogue in that whole scene itself is just filled with menace, really subdued yeah. men- menace. And it's that whole thing that, like you said, about like you just don't know which way that his scene is going to go. Because there's moments and there's levity in there, and you think, oh well, you know, this is going to work out fine. And I was like, oh no, 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 this is this is twisting, this is playing with us. One final bit of dialogue which I want to throw out is uh, the closing line of Kill Bill Volume One. One more thing, Sophie, is she aware her daughter is alive? And literally, like, boom, end credits come up. It's like we've got to wait twelve months to find <laughs> out. <laughs> One of my favourite cliffhanger endings of any film of all time because it was just such a rug puller. Because oh, yeah, yeah, all the yeah. way through that first part, you were just like, you know, she'd been bludgeoned and like beaten, lost the baby, and she believes she lost the baby. So that was such a nice little play. Yeah. So no love for Wiggle Your Big Toe. Wiggle. <laughs> Wiggle. <laughs> Wiggle Your Big Toe. Only Tarantino. <laughs> okay, you can't talk about Tarantino without, without talking about the calls to cancel him, which has gone on for various things over the years, either from his choice of racist language in films his relationship with Weinstein and also his alleged like mistreatment of women in films. Do these complaints hold any water and should we separate the artist from the art as a lot of people tend to say? It's tough because you can find examples of him being um, disrespectful to everyone and everything in his films because they're all so violent that he probably hits on every major diverse minority by proxy and accident. <laughs> I think at this point it's probably on purpose. I, I think it's a fair criticism when you think of all these great characters, if you took the bride out of it, there's not enough strong women. It's a, it's a, it's a light There's a one. couple, but they're just not there long enough. Yeah, it could be a bit better with that to mm. dissuade the women. You could violence. argue that Jackie Brown's the strongest woman character that has been in any of his films. You could. Yeah. Probably the strongest character. You could, and within films. three of his eight films, I suddenly look ridiculous. But... <laughs> <laughs> but I don't. I don't think there's a problem with women violence. Really? Um, did it say mistreatment of actresses? Mistreatment and yeah. like is or female actors. Yeah. Oh, is that on set that... more than on film? Well, yeah. you, you get with the. I mean, the the allegations from the old whole Uma Thurman thing that like you know she did a back in like driving a stunt car that she, he allegedly forced her into, even though she's turned around and said no, he didn't. Um, he didn't force her. She was willing to do it. Um, he just wanted to get the good shot and she was willing to do it for him. Then there's the, um, he always, whenever there's close-ups of people being throttled, he uses his own hands. Yeah, go. I forgot about that. Oh, that's yeah, weird. That's, oh, um, and also um, Uber Thurman being spat on in Kill Bill. Oh yeah, that's him. In, that yeah. was his spit. Now, the full story about that is they tried like fake spit and just didn't look right and all that. And, Actors have been spat on properly in films oh, yeah, yeah. throughout the decades. But it was made a big fuss because, well, Tarantino himself decided to spit on it. It's like, well, that's not exactly how it was. It's um, yeah, all, she, it, all... He didn't feel comfortable doing it, but um, the character who was supposed to be doing it, Michael Madsen's one, he definitely didn't want to do it. And it was because of the close relationship that he, like Tarantino has with Thurman that she said that, well, you get one chance to do this, time, like Quentin. We're not um, privy to... I'm, I'm happy for you to do it, but let's... Just get the one shot. Absolutely, yeah. Well, we're not privy to the conversation because it no. could be a mutual, yeah, let's do that. See, but people assume, because they assume a power relationship, don't they? So, oh, I have to be spat on because I will be sacked. Uma Thurman was a huge star around that time. Yeah. I, I don't think she was that worried. 
to, to be fair, another issue we have is because we all know the Tarantino who has his little selfish moments in films we're talking about the feet not long ago. Yeah. So I think when people hear things like that, their first thought is it's a self-indulgence again. Yeah. Because, you know, he's... Because he's a weird, quirky guy as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think we, we project a lot onto him. Don't I, I feel that um, it's important to take the art with the context of the artist and stuff. And I can enjoy something, but if I know the artist has done something terrible or wrong, I will then, I'll like say, yeah, the art was great in that, but I also won't do it anymore out of principle. I won't like watch, do you watch it again. Polanski films, no. for instance. No. Yeah, I, I was going to throw out that one as a, like an example because there's a load of people who say, "Oh, after hearing about like how Tarantino treats such and such and how he it's it's disrespect, yeah. like I'm not going to watch any of his films again." It's like, oh, you still got Rosemary's Baby on like one of your yeah. top films on <laughs> on Letterboxd. So uh, what's going on there? Yes, it's one of those things <laughs> where once you like, well, they've done this, I'm not going to be able to because although I can see the art and know the art is good and I enjoyed the art it's always going to be there in the back of my mind. Yeah. I'm not someone who can dissociate yeah. what that person has done. Um, like anytime someone's called up in a court case or whatever, I'm then dubious and that's in my mind the whole time I'm watching something. So I, I can't until, because I'm, I'm just that kind of person. And I, I understand people who are different, um, who who just like, it doesn't matter that person did that, they did this out of the other, but it doesn't change that the other actors didn't do those things or the other people in this film didn't do it, the crew didn't, do that so it's not really fair and it's you know there's it's so many so many points and arguments but i must say i can't dissociate with the, the bad and the, the good so i I'm... agree to a point like i i can separate art from artists but i i when when it becomes that next level of any sort of support can't do it like plansky i'll, I'll watch chinatown or something appreciate his art but i refuse to buy it or put a penny in his yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you know what i mean like it there's a, there's just well, it's whatever your line is, isn't it? Yeah. It's what, like, I won't watch a Mel Gibson film. I can't bring myself to do it because that's one of the few occasions I can't separate art from artists whenever yeah. I see it. And that's how I feel bad, as I, I just said, because there are so many people who are involved in filmmaking who had nothing to do with oh, yeah. what this person has done. Yeah. Like when the, you know, Kevin Spacey case and that came up, there's so many other actors in his films who wanted to, you know, work with him and stuff. And they all worked well together and they made great scenes. But because of this one person and, the, you know, you sort of dismiss the other people's work because you can't dissociate. And then I feel guilty. Yeah. So I've got this weird sort of, I won't watch it. Or I'm going to feel guilty the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, like, there's been like legit cases and accusations that are incredibly serious to bring this discussion to the floor. I don't. I'm not aware of one with Tarantino. It's all just speculation here. Say, oh, that's dodge. Oh, he's weird. It's for like Weins, uh, Weinstein. Weinstein. We, we, I think his association with Weinstein didn't help over the past year of debate. I mean, you know, you've also got like the the reporter who like asked him a question, a very carefully concealed accusation, framed as a question that he mm. dismissed her hypothesis. And then loads of people went, oh, he's so arrogant and he's so disrespectful to women. It's like, no, did you hear what she was asking? Yeah. She was basically asking why are women treated like shit in your films? Yeah. That was not an issue. And anyone who's seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood will realise exactly why he dismissed that hypothesis anyway, because they clearly didn't watch the film. But you can't, it's, it's, depending on the film that's out, he's been accused of women hating, racism, uh, over violence, being direct result of, of gun crime in America, all sorts of <laughs> And then it's like, this poor bloke, he's coming out to sell a film and it's like, you, you're the scourge of society. <laughs> the thing is, and then we go, oh, he got a bit upset. 
<laughs> the thing is as well we, we joked about his you know homages earlier and how he likes to take from other films because he's a prop is a self-professed cinephile he, mm. he loves it all and he likes making those references and that and it's just sad that he's like bringing all his favorite references together and doing films the way he wants to and then he's the devil yeah and all of this other stuff already exists but it's him who's it's kind of movie violence it exists everywhere he just unabashedly uses it and loves it and he's like the most mainstream com- proponent of it so he's getting a lot of the flack, but it's everywhere. We all watch dodgy horror films and B-movie schlock with cartoon blood everywhere. Why is it Tarantino, like, having to justify ball pits of Hollywood trope? Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> just because he's an auteur. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> justify all the, like, most schlocky bits of movies. <laughs> well, we watch them because we like it. And on the... <laughs> On the, the race thing, I'd definitely have to do more research before I touch any of that because, like, depiction of race as it is is a very tricky topic. And when you're a filmmaker who's dealing with any of that in any context, it's pretty hard. So it's kind of strange. Yeah. So it's not an area. Prominent I'd... black actors sign on quite happily, though, don't they? Like Django and Samuel, we were talking about one of his key collaborators. Not that one person can justify what's racist or not, but like, I feel like one of them would be like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Hang on a minute, tone the script down. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) they're all very happy to comply and go along. And is that right, wrong? (laughs) I think I think that's something that will still be prevalent with any reporting on Tarantino going forward, and it'll always be something that like will be drawn upon. Well, he's only got like one more film, so he says before he's going to stop directing, which is like mostly to do with the fact the lack of actual film stock within the industry because everything's moving to digital. So as there's less and less resources, people like him and Christopher Nolan, who also likes using film stock, are going to make less and less product. Tarantino basically says, after 10 films, I'm done. If he stops directing, would you like him to keep any role within the industry? And what would you like him to be? Nothing really, because acting-wise, he's <laughs> not that great. <laughs> the, the only other thing he'd be doing was producing and helping other directors and everybody else just get a name on the thing like what Del Toro does and what have you really. Well like these 10 films only relate to his directed ones mm. and obviously he's done three or four written ones so that's his loophole just keep writing them. <laughs> I, I like the idea of him doing for some reason guest spot episodes on TV shows in regards to writing mm. like uh, where he just you know. Did CSI in. didn't he? He's done a couple of shows over the years where he's done one one episode here and there yeah. Um did yeah, he do an American that, office, or have I made that up? Is that? I'm not sure if you made that one up. I mean, I, I like to he make up facts. I mean, the parkour scene was pretty intense, <laughs> <laughs> potentially. <laughs> when Michael Scott got shot in the face. <laughs> I think he did. Dwight finally snapped. <laughs> I, I think he did an episode of ER as well. I remember. I know someone about that. Yeah, I mean, personally, I, I, you know, producing. Like you say, you know, to be able to get other people, like, he's been doing it for years. I mean, like, he was responsible for the release of Hero in the US. Um, He got behind it and drove it and became an executive producer in order to get the Western Mm. release of it. So he's always been very key in getting, like, less mainstream films out to a mainstream audience. And I think, you know, if he utilises his name to, like, help other films get more prominence, Mm. I'd love to see that. Personally, you mentioned TV. I think if he was de- to develop scripts for a, like a Fargo-esque TV series set oh, in the Tarantino-verse, yeah. where each season can be a different like focal point, basically looking at each of his Tarantino-verse films and adapt, like doing 
them on TV. That would be an interesting thing, and that'd be something that I'd be thoroughly, thoroughly looking forward to watching. I'd, I'd, I'd really like, um, for some reason, I don't know why, for him to do an in universe, like one of the TV shows from in universe. Just as a show for a bit. Yeah. Just because I'd love to see the kind of things that people are watching in the Tarantino verse. If real life is like <laughs> <laughs> I really want to know what they're watching. So, so tying into that, the 10th film. So, I mean, and this is ignoring the fact that he's now trying to say that Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 were one film, which means that, okay, he's only yeah. done eight films so far. And he's saying that he wants to do Kill Bill Volume 3, which will be part of that. So that, that's still only eight films. So he should theoretically have two. But if he does only make one more film. If he says that to me, I'm saying, well, technically, you're a director's credit on Sin City. You're still on nine. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> so, um, what would you like to see him tackle for this swan song? And which stars would you like to see him drafted to bring it to the screen? What genre would you like to see him revisit characters from his other films and do a, another film linking to that? I'd probably like a more, a, a second sort of like Dirty Dozen stylized film. Again, bring back Christopher Waltz. You, <laughs> you want Reservoir Dogs with Christopher Waltz? I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> one of my most least liked films. And I want to do another one. All I needed was for Waltz, man. <laughs> You're a complex fella. <laughs> I did say Dirty doesn't, didn't I? Yeah, but like, essentially, you, you, you describe Reservoir Dogs to me. Only you see the robbery. Is that your issue? <laughs> He just wants to see that heist. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know it's not quite. It's not quite as it's overlap, but um, so much overlap. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough because like one, one minute I quite like the idea of his tenth film just being Tarantino Star Trek because it'd be fascinating to see him in a genre he's never done <laughs> with a property that's not his, bringing whatever he can to it. But on the other hand, I think if that's going to be a swan song, it really needs to be an originally created work because yeah. He, yeah. he doesn't need to do that, does he? Yeah. We're, we're watching the Star Trek film, whoever's doing it. Like, it doesn't have to be a name like that. So it depends. If if, if he is going to play with numbers and facts to make that his penultimate film, I'd love it to be the Star Trek to see him in that sort of realm because it's a realm he's got nowhere near. Still all westerns and revenge thrillers and martial arts, crime dramas. He's 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 proven all that, hasn't he? But he's gone nowhere near the more fantasy sci-fi area. Yeah. I have no idea if he has a, a capability for it. Even that'd my, be fascinating. Like <laughs> my worry on um, a Quentin Tarantino Star Trek is that he's so influenced by like the golden age of cinema that he would make it a bit too like kitschy, kitschy. Yeah, he'd go for that kind of feel and go for the like pulpy sci-fi as opposed to what Star Trek has now become, which is a more progressive mm. like, and a, a far-reaching kind of sci-fi. My, my big worry about Tarantino Star Trek is what the alien feet are going to look like. What <laughs> <laughs> are they going to be subjected to? Yep. For... The <laughs> aliens will be made of feet. <laughs> <laughs> Foot's over. The, the Starfleet oh, officer. The Vulcan... It's just thinking of a Tarantino version of Shatner just going around space as much feet as he can. <laughs> the Vulcan death grip is now with feet. <laughs> but your dog, it's only got tentacles. It's invincible. <laughs> just a little big, a big toe, just nip. <laughs> oh God! Uh, you just shot Chekhov in the face. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, even though, like I said, I have a time, a lot of stuff going on, bad experience with the Hateful Eight as a quite claustrophobic film. And I'd kind of like that again, but in a different setting. And I, for some reason, I've a submarine, and I don't know why. 
because of probably because of the added pressure of like you're underwater. There's literally yeah. no way. Added water pressure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. <laughs> or or a prison, uh, so that he could do cameos with a, within the film. We you could see someone in the distance who looks like someone, and you're like, oh, you know, those are my two. So because the dialogue and the the kind, like I say, one of my favorite things is the dialogue, which can be either you're not sure whether it's safe dialogue or dialogue at least to violence. And I think those two settings would be. Be quite good for if it. we had to chuck a genre at it, what would it be? Um, I don't know, stage plays. Would you want to see something you know he can do well or something you know he hasn't done as like a box tick or an intrigue? Ooh. Um, probably a hybrid bit of both. I'm... Something he hasn't done, but throw in a lot of what he has. So you know, there's safe bits, but then there's you know, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I'd be interested to see him tackle horror. Yeah, I was thinking that. Pure on He flirted horror. with it in Death Proof sort of thing, yeah, didn't he? but he's not done, like, classic style of horror, yeah. which I think uh, would... You know, his, his use of blood and gore would definitely fit for it. Mm. It'd definitely be... I feel like it'd fall more on the comedy horror side, whether by mistake or not, because a lot of his <laughs> violence is very cartoony. And I'd be all right with that, though. Yeah. We know he can build suspense. We yeah. know he can do gore. It'd be something like Child's Play or something, I've read. Probably or Evil Dead-esque. I think yeah. he'd do that on purpose, though. He'd be going for that Sam Raimi sort of area, but more... But aside from that, bit. I'd be interested to see... You've got all the links between so many of his films and you've got characters being referenced in different films and all that, so there's obviously backstory or something going on there. I think it'd be interesting to have something that would like link the Vega brothers, maybe bring in um, elements of true romance into there and like have like a final closing film that ties up any like little loose threads that like, were left from any of the characters that he created throughout it all his canon. Like Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back. Yes. Exactly like Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back. I'm kind of weirdly into that. <laughs> like, like... Well, on the um, mention of Kevin Smith... I think that's uh, drawing a close to the discussion on Quentin Tarantino. So anyone who wants to get involved in the Entos debates each week, they take place, as I said at the start of the podcast, 8pm on Sundays every week. That's 8pm UK time. Just follow the hashtag MTOS, which stands for Movie Talk on Sunday. And thank you for joining me around the table today. I've been Andy. Jason. Scott. James. Be sure to keep subscribing and keep following and there'll be more bonus episodes and main episodes over the next few weeks. Thank you very much. Bye.